Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. My name is Emma Figures. I'm a UK-based doctor and part of the WEM faculty, and I'm going to be your host today. So whatever your background, whether you're a nurse, paramedic, doctor, whatever you're doing working in healthcare, or even if you're not working in healthcare and you just care about people and the planet in which we live, this is the podcast for you. Um, you're very welcome and we are excited today to be hearing from Dr. Rose and Dr. Flora who are two incredible doctors um, who were working earlier, I was going to say earlier this year, no they were working last year, no in 2021, um, out on um, Lesbos um, in Moria refugee camp. Um, so these fantastic amazing doctors. Um, let's tell you a little bit more about them and their background and then we'll get to introducing them um, in person. So Flora um, graduated from <laughs> Peninsula Medical School in 2017 and then went on to complete her foundation training up in Scotland. Um, after that she went on to do an ED clinical fellowship that was combined with expedition medicine in Bristol which is where she met Rose. Um, after doing her easy clinical fellowship, um, she decided that she wanted to take a break from the more traditional career ladder of medicine and broaden her, her horizons. Um, she had, up until this point, been really interested in humanitarian medicine, having done her elective out in Malawi, um, and then last year decided that she wanted to head out to um, Moria refugee camp to see what things were like there and um, she also completed her diploma in tropical medicine um, and that's got her more excited about doing humanitarian work in the future. Um, Rose in the meantime um, studied at Bart's also graduating in 2017. She then did her foundation years in Brighton and Hastings and then moved up to do her F3 in ED um, with expedition medicine in Bristol where as I said she met Flora. Um, during the course of her um, placement um, in Bristol. She got to do lots of exciting things such as the altitude medicine course, um, some ski medicine, um, and then also decided after the initial wave of COVID to head out to work in Moria refugee camp. Um, after that, she went sailing as a ship medic um, with Adventure Under Sail um, across the Bay of Biscay, and she's now moved out to New Zealand and she's joining us from New Zealand, hence why it's dark in the background <laughs> there. <laughs> Um, so both of you are very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Um, so they're going to be talking to us today about their experiences um, in Moria. Um, so as many of you will have heard perhaps on the news, um, in September of last year, the largest refugee camp in Europe very sadly burnt to the ground. Um, Moria, which is on the Greek island of Lesbos, was home to up to, we think, 20,000 refugees living on a camp that was built for about 3,000. Um, the conditions there were dire. Um, and now they've been moved to another camp. Um, some people have been relocated to Europe, but really not that many. And I think the conditions are perhaps even more dire from what I've heard um, over in Moria 2.0. So let's get to it um, and hear about your experiences. Um, from working there last year, if that's okay. Um, so to begin with, I suppose, what was your initial motivation um, for wanting to go out to volunteer as medics? Um, I think you were working with MVI, um, Medical Volunteers International, is that right? Yeah. Um, and 
yeah, let's go, um, Flora, can you tell us to begin with what, what it was that made you want to go out and work on the camp? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, we, quite a few reasons actually that we both really wanted to go. Um, quite a few of our colleagues that we've worked with in the past and at Bristol um, had worked at Moria um, or, and with MSF and different humanitarian settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we both were quite um, interested and quite curious actually just to um, be exposed and um, get some more experience. Um, I think both of us realised in our emergency work in the UK we often see um, and treat um, patients who were once asylum seekers themselves um, and they're now receiving um, sort of healthcare in a very unfamiliar system to what they used to um, back home. Um, so we, we we felt that getting some experiences in a, in a um, refugee camp would help us to empathise um, with what they've been through before arriving in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also um, just getting the opportunity to work alongside colleagues from different countries. Um, there's lots of Germans and Dutch with a really sort of different attitude to the UK and to asylum seekers and it, that was you know a really really um, well worth experience doing that mm. uh, and I think personally I, I've always had an interest in humanitarian work and um, doing the diploma of tropical medicine I was quite keen to try and sort of put, it, put that knowledge into action as well so yeah brilliant um, yeah I don't know if Rose yeah I think that kind of sums it up quite well I think there was a, a large element of it was kind of curiosity as part of it, which I think you can't deny anyone doing any new kind of work, but also seeing people that we saw at work that have come from these backgrounds, but really we had no idea about. Also, when I was um, growing up, I used to live in the Netherlands and I helped out there at a um, kind of a refugee organization working mm. with children. And you see, I'd see people there that they were just living in what I thought at the time was relative like terrible conditions like all families in one room these are people that have come from kind of lots of them from very highly paid jobs or from very skilled jobs and they've just ended up with nothing and it's something that I always kind of I find quite meaningful and, and like to do when I was at school and to help out with and that was something I hadn't really done through university at all but then mm-hmm. now having gained some experience as a doctor being able to combine that with my work and then do that again. It was something that seemed kind of the right time. Career-wise, mm. I've got some experience. We weren't both in the kind of strict training scheme anymore. Yeah. There was an opportunity to do that. Mm. So that was kind of part of the motivation for me as well. Yeah. Yeah, something that really struck me about what you said then is that, you know, a lot of these people that you see have come from really highly skilled backgrounds and then are living with nothing. And when I was at Amuria last year as well, that, um, that really hit home for me. Um, so a lot of the interpreters and translators that we were working with, um, you know, some of them had completed engineering degrees and they were really bright, driven, amazing people. And then they were, like you say, Rose, exactly just living in such awful conditions and just in this kind of limbo waiting to see what might happen to them. It was, it was just a horrible, horrible situation. Yeah, and I think some of these people were in that situation for so long as well. Mm. They'd have one that I saw back in the Netherlands and there they'd have one try to appeal to get their asylum that would get rejected then they're back in that limbo again and it's just it's not you can't think of what it must be like no no it's just it's just awful um 
Okay, so I guess in terms of thinking about getting out there and sort of getting organized to actually go out there and volunteer, did you find there were any barriers um, to try and get there? Or how was the process for you? I suppose um, we had a bit of a kind of difficult experience COVID related. Mm. We were kind of between the two. It was after the first main wave, but still travel wasn't really happening very yeah. much. So it's quite difficult to get insurance and things like that. Mm -hmm. And to organize that. Our first flights were cancelled. Oh, there was yeah. Like, to go out. So a lot of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Also, I think looking at organizations to go out with was difficult. Mm. Lots of people weren't working at the time because of COVID. They pulled all their volunteers, mm -hmm. um, especially kind of some of the ones in France. They weren't working at all. Mm. Uh, some organizations that we wrote to just didn't seem quite above board there was one um in calais that i wrote to who said basically after my first email inquiring they're like yeah we've signed you up some dates come along i think you, you haven't asked for a dbs or any kind of checks you haven't asked for any more about me mm. i don't know how kind of above board or safe this is for mm -hmm. myself or people you'd be looking after mm. so kind of quite a long process of looking through who needed what what we were actually going to be doing yeah there's so many different NGOs aren't there it's tricky sometimes to navigate and figure out who would be the best to go out with um, and how to then sort of I guess get everything together that you need um how about you Flora um yeah so very similar to Rose we kind of went through it all together which was quite nice um mm. but um I think just on a um kind of actually traveling into country um as well um, I can't remember who it was, but they advised us not, when we arrived into Greece, not to say that you're there as a humanitarian worker, because for politically it can be quite difficult, mm -hmm. um, especially for the Greeks, which is perfectly understandable. Um, and then, yeah, I think also getting time out of work, we, we were really lucky that we were able to fit it around our work in, in Bristol, but um, yeah, for anyone going out, then I think going out for more than a couple of weeks is actually really beneficial for you personally but also for the people you're working for so um trying to fit it around annual leave and your training and things like that um can be a bit challenging but definitely worth it <laughs> yeah definitely did you guys have to um also get things like your um indemnity and your medical certificates translated to greek and apostilled and things like that or was that not something that you had to do no we i think the the ngo before we before we went they sent mm -hmm. us some documents in Greek which um, I think were like a sort of temporary medical certificate whilst we were there mm -hmm. and translated to the one that we you know um, we, we signed that and it, it worked as a um, mm -hmm. then we also had our own indemnity cover yeah and that we organized personally so yeah um, okay great yeah I think um, when I was out there we had to get things our sort of personal documents all translated beforehand so I think just I guess to um, check with the organization that you're going with to find out what it is that you need to do and make sure that you prepare early for that um, so when you got out there um, what were your first impressions of Moria of the camp of the people how did you find it um, yeah so we had two weeks of quarantine and throughout that time we were, Rose and I were both you know, had, had these images in our head of what we were going to expect. But mm. um, I think when we eventually started work, it was, you know, it was completely bizarre and different and to anything that we could um, imagine. Um, obviously, this is barbed wire enclosure um, when you arrive um, and there's the 
Greek sort of armed police um, at the gate. Mm. Um, and you could just definitely feel it was quite a tense and sort of desperate atmosphere. Um, and on the first day as well, actually, there was quite a lot of violence um, in the night before we started. Um, there was quite a few stabbings and um, unrest and usually as a result from the anger and frustration of the sort of asylum process itself, but also between different sort of cultural groups in the camp as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was quite sort of, both of us were a bit scared really actually, um, but luckily we were there with our with the NGO workers and we were all working together and it was um, very quickly, we felt very safe. Um, mm. So, but no, we, we arrived at the um, medical center, which was made up of um, a couple of containers, um, which included, um, there's a pharmacy, which was actually really well stocked. Um, there's a, um, individual consultation rooms, which were divided by curtains um, with a, it was an ECG machine and an ultrasound machine. Um, and yeah, all the, the NGO workers. And there was a, um, one Greek doctor who was there a lot of the time. And um, he was really, really good um, mm. to put us in touch with um, services in the, in the area and just say how things worked, really. Mm, that's um, really helpful. Yeah. And then just the overriding sort of feeling was it's just very hot, sweaty, <laughs> loud, very overwhelming. Um, but yeah, it's exciting. Um, mm. Yeah. Just... Oh, great. Flora, and uh, no, sorry, Rose, um, any different sort of first impressions or? Yeah, I think it was kind of similar, just seeing it, it wasn't anything I'd imagined, kind of quite interesting. I tried to look it up on Google Maps before, and you come mm-hmm. Google Earth, you can't see it, it's all blurred out. Mm. It doesn't give you an image of what it is at all. And then I just kind of, I still kind of can't believe that it's in Europe. Mm. It's what you imagine something would be in kind of third world country, terrible things going on, whatever, but not in Europe at all. Mm. Just tents everywhere. I think some of their bins have been kind of kicked over. There's rubbish everywhere. People were shouting. And obviously, as Flora said, this was the night after um, some stabbings, and someone had, I think, sadly died that night. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a difficult situation to get got there. I remember just seeing kind of one bloodied footprint going along the perimeter outside, and just thinking, kind of, oh my god, what what's been going on? What what happens here? Mm. And it, that it was good having the NGO worker we were with there because she knew a lot of people, was very calm, happy to kind of go around talking to people and let us know and yeah. see inside the camp as well, which was amazing. People had started their own mini businesses. They were selling things. It was actually a kind of an amazing community that people had created mm. um, living there for so long. Yeah. And as well then, yeah, seeing the medical kind of center, it was yeah lots of kind of netting and curtains between things and well set up but a, a bit chaotic mm-hmm. <laughs> actually the pharmacy although well stocked always seemed to have about 10 people in it <laughs> kind of getting shown where everything was there was just a lot of noise and a lot of different things going on mm-hmm. um, so it was definitely kind of very different from your uk setting working in this clean white shiny hospital <laughs> where actually you've got this gravel ground some sh- dirty sheets up between you and other people if you're lucky you get inside one of the cabins mm-hmm. um, if not you're just on some kind of like boxes outside mm. I think it was a bit of a shock seeing it at first yeah um, and just kind of yeah a change complete change of pace and working and how things are done yeah 
yeah definitely I think I agree with um, what you were saying about sort of initially it is quite daunting and you sort of hear stories before you go in and you don't necessarily really know what to expect um and then you sort of arrive and there's the armed police and you think oh and I was there just before Covid um so I don't know how different it was um compared to when you were there but just being able to actually once you do like have an orientation around the camp like you were saying about the people who've set up little local businesses and things and there is that real community yeah. spirit and feel there isn't there um yeah. it's, it's I think it's the, exter- the hard exterior which you need to like break past and yeah going into the camp and meeting some people just very normal people it was like yeah you instantly yeah. feel much more welcome mm, definitely so um what was your everyday work like were there any sort of common presentations that you saw when you were working there so we were generally either working in kind of the area, the central triage, where you saw quicker cases, well, supposedly quicker cases, mm-hmm. or the more chronic patients. Yeah. I think a lot of the time people would come in, because they did have to queue for a long time, and it was quite difficult to get into the medical centre. Mm-hmm. So they would come with one problem, they'd come with kind of three plus problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a lot of things that are kind of I noticed seeing would the general kind of gastritis, headaches, not sleeping, um, constipation, all things that would kind of almost, if you talk to people for long enough, come back to the situation they were in, if they weren't getting very good food, that mm. obviously a very stressful situation. Massively, and yeah. Yeah, talking to people more and more, you'd kind of unravel things and notice a lot of it was coming back to their mental health at that time and how, and the stress that they were under. Mm-hmm, of course and, yeah and people would come and kind of was wanting medication and it was it was a difficult pull a lot of the time mm. where they just giving medication that probably wasn't going to fix anything mm. because what was underlying it was quite a lot more difficult mm-hmm. so, yes yeah, a, a lot of people were kind of amnesia as they were describing it just memory loss mm. uh, and probably just related to the stressful situation they were in mm-hmm. so a lot of that a lot of skin problems, mm. problems, and scabies. Like I've never seen scabies ever before. Yeah, it's, scabies. Yeah, these little dots in your hands. It's not there. It's mm-hmm. horrible. Kind of huge bites and like rubbed off skin all over your body. It was mm. absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would come home itching every night yeah. as well thinking like oh my god scabies yeah so much scabies is I guess because of the such overcrowded situations that people are living in um and they can't really sort of just go and wash all their clothes because often they're just there isn't the facilities there to be able to do that yeah um, treating it I think it was like you treat it and then they'd come back a week later and they've got it again because someone else mm-hmm. has got it so yeah um were there any particular cases um sort of clinical cases that really stood out to you or any particular shifts um that really kind of made an impression I uh it was actually my last shift in the camp um Mm. like in the emergency care um in the evening and um there was a, a young boy actually who um presented with his dad um he's from Afghanistan and um he was really tearful and um, very quiet um, and um, very helpful. You know, the translator we were working with was, was really, really sensitive and asked um, just the right questions, really, just to try and get out of um, the boy what had been going on. And he basically had these um, 
lesions on um on the end of his penis mm. um yeah and it was it was really really tough um he was only about eight or nine um and um culturally it was quite difficult to ask the correct questions mm-hmm. um but also we kind of had to hone down as to how he got these um we at one point we asked the dad to leave the room just to see if the boy would open up a bit more um and in the UK or any, you know, any other country would trigger sort of alarm bell um, questions of, um, you know, whether this is the victim of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that, um, you know, the, the boy, he said he hadn't been, um, it didn't seem to be um, that um, from the questions we asked. Um, but it, I was also struck with the realisation that if it had been that, then actually... Um, getting the boy to the right services was going to be a huge, cha- you know, massive challenge. And um, the best that we could do at that stage was to give him the sort of antiviral, sorry, antiviral uh, medication. Mm. Um, and we kind of talked about um, the, their social situation. Um, they yeah. lived in actually an old sort of broken down bus on the um, outside of the camp with several different families. So we made a, a sort of a safeguarding plan and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he was going to look after the boy a bit closer and um, I handed him over to one of my colleagues to follow up um, mm-hmm. but yeah that was just so challenging because in the UK um, in a case like that you know you get social services involved and there'll be a huge investigation and things but um, there was nothing like that and I just he was such a vulnerable young child um, he was yeah it was just really really challenging but Mm. um yeah that one that case definitely stuck um Mm. yeah understandably I think that is another of the challenges isn't it in terms of the kind of extra support like you say the community support and the secondary care referrals they are very limited unfortunately in that situation when I was out there the um uh, they weren't taking any more um, mental health referrals and um, because they were just totally saturated and they didn't have any capacity um, and these people have a lot of complex and difficult needs and really need that support. Um, yeah, I think Rose had one which was um well Rose had a, a mental health one didn't you that was quite. Uh, mm, did you want to tell us? That? Uh, that lady with PTSD I don't know if you remember. Um, the one with the sexual violence. Or... Yeah. So I had, a, I had one woman who came in who was, it, she'd basically come in for abdominal pain, mm. um, who'd been seen, because MSF have some kind of, they have women's services, they can do some ultrasound. She'd had mm. that, it found nothing. Mm-hmm. It was quite a difficult consultation because um, she didn't speak that much English. Um, I think she was French speaking, and I didn't speak that much, I don't speak much French at all. Mm. And there were no translators around at the time. Oh no. So a bit of a difficult time. Yeah. But, well, I managed to kind of, we got some common ground in speaking and kind of examination, there wasn't really much to find. But when mm-hmm. I was chatting to her, there were a lot of scars all over her body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of asking what's going on, why are you here? And it was a young woman, probably kind of early thirties there by herself, which is quite uncommon. Mm. It's mainly young men by themselves or families. Yeah. So it's already a bit strange. And then she kind of opened up to me about she'd escaped her husband back home um who had and she said she had been pregnant and then she had a big scar across her abdomen like mm. left bottom scar and I said what's happened and she explained that she'd been pregnant and he'd beaten her so much that she'd lost the child and kind of who died in utero 
oh. and had a C-section at that time. And it's been ever since then, she's been having that pain. Um, yeah. And I think probably what a lot of it was kind of psychosomatic, probably some from surgery, but also she was still grieving that loss. Mm, and course. then yeah. straight after that, she left her country, left her family, left her friends and ended up in Camp Moria, mm-hmm. which isn't kind of a conducive environment for healing in any way. No. Um, but one one thing that I did find we could do to help with her, because there were kind of sexual violence um, centres and domestic violence centres with under the bar- um, umbrella of MSF. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did kind of refer her on to there, because I think she'd been getting all these investigations, looking at kind of what's wrong, there's nothing on ultrasound, you're okay. But actually, when she did open up, there was a lot more going on there. Mm. I think that is representative of a lot of people yeah. that are in Camp Moria, and it's kind of digging down a bit. And it doesn't necessarily mean we can fix it, but it does mean there's something to work with and kind of help people with a bit more. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that was often the case, wasn't it? I mean, yes, there's there are a lot of... Um, physical elements a lot um, but there's a whole lot going on beneath the surface as well that might be manifesting or as physical symptoms um but actually um because of all the horrendous things that people have often been through before um sometimes it is kind of manifesting more in a physical way for an underlying um psychological thing um i guess sort of going on from that thinking about challenges that you might have experienced were there um were there any particular challenges that you found working in that environment um oh yeah sorry Rose I was just going to say the lack of kind of mental health support which you've already kind of touched on Mm -hmm. was quite a difficult one Mm -hmm. um with lots of patients when you're thinking I just they just need to speak to someone Mm -hmm. you've got 10 minutes yeah. It's a bit more if you want, but that's not going to help you. That was yeah. a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think access to investigations um, mm-hmm. and secondary care, that was really, really challenging. Um, it was a very much a case-by-case basis, but I, it seemed to be just like the most severe sort of emergency cases were sent on to hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also like personally sort of turning off at the end of each shift, um, you know, leaving leaving the horrendous conditions of the camp and then going back to your comfortable NGO accommodation just felt really strange mm. um, and also I think both of us like even we we're only there for a few, you know not that long but we both really wanted to try and um try and help make make changes within the NGOs but also within the camp and it was like you had to really realize that you're, you're not going to be able to do that and just appreciating what you can do whilst you're there mm-hmm. yeah it- yeah I think, I mean, I've heard Moria like referred to as hell on earth. Um, and I think as we've sort of alluded to, the, the new camp is no better, perhaps even worse than the previous camp. And it is, it doesn't feel right sometimes, does it, going home from that? So I was working there doing the evening shifts um, and the emergency stuff. And one night we had eight stabbings in and there were riots and everything going on outside. Um, and the the interpreters who we were working with um, had to go back out into that. Um, and yeah. it's so hard to, like yeah. you say, kind of separate and distance yourself yeah. um, from that. It's yeah. And the translators would turn, like the interpreters, they'd turn up every day, like incredibly smartly dressed, mm-hmm. you know, 
really cleaning clothes than what we were wearing and yeah. I was like how on earth are you cleaning your clothes and they're like oh no you you work out a way of cleaning your clothes in this camp and, and you know presenting yourself and they were just you know they it was amazing and, and they would go back to their tent and have to sleep um you know with, with loads of different people and it was just I don't know I just yeah they, they were um I think they were like the truly kind of um the translators were you need you realized how much you needed them and how incredible they were you know well. mm, so incredible like I think they are the heroes they are for yeah. me um <laughs> just they would often work such long hours as well I think they'd a lot of them would be volunteering and helping out during the day with translating and then they'd come and work in the evening shift and they'd do the translating mm-hmm. and then finish really late and get up again the next morning yeah. and I asked um one of them one day like why like why do you come and do this what's your reason for coming to do it and they said well you know what else would we do just be sitting around in our tents doing nothing just waiting we want to do something we want to give back we want to help and they're just incredible individuals I think yeah and it's it's exhausting like the content of what you're talking about is sort of emotionally exhausting Mm -hmm. and for them um you know I think you already said but they've been through very similar stories and you know the, the, the background of what they've been through and it must be awful for them to sort of have to recount it again and again and again whenever they're translating for a patient um, mm-hmm. so yeah that was something we had to be quite aware of actually and um the NGO and everyone we're working with sort of remind kept on reminding us like let, let them have a break and if they want to have a time out then that's mm-hmm. um so yeah um yeah working with the translators was was um was really rewarding and, and challenging at times but you realize how, how important they are mm, mm, just vital rose were you going to say something um, yeah i was going to say it really kind of it hit home to me just because you know they've been through those situations and you know how difficult it is but it really kind of hit home at one point when i mm-hmm. had a translation i think he was it was his second or third day translating with a woman who was talking about difficulty breastfeeding not getting enough food um, a lot of different issues and she just had her first rejection and was just really struggling and, and low in mood mm-hmm. and at that point the, the translator started to get very upset as well mm. and he had turned to me and kind of said this is this is what my wife is going through at the same time mm. um, and so the woman in front of me was getting upset and getting quite tearful and then he was there as well just kind of struggling um, mm. and trying to get quite tearful and I was like this is such a difficult situation he's put himself through this and and he was telling me kind of he's come where he'd been working before he'd been working as translator people had ended up getting shot like in Afghanistan and things he'd witnessed and now he's here because he was struggling his wife was struggling mm-hmm. at that point I was just like, please take a break this is this is too much this is exactly what you're going through it's it's they're such strong people that are doing that for us mm-hmm. and for everyone else in the camp it's unbelievable yeah just really difficult as well because there we were kind of an open air setting there wasn't anywhere you could go and take five minutes a lot of the time Mm -hmm. yeah I think they're just like you say just such strong people um that so many of them have been through such atrocities and then yet they still want to be able to give back and to be able to help their community and to try and like just do what they can to make a better future for themselves and for their families um and I remember asking um, one of the translators one time, you know, would you ever want to go back home? Because they were saying that, you know, they'd been stuck in the camp for over a year, just waiting. And they said, you know, we can't, if we went back, we'd be killed. 
you know, this situation is awful, but we don't have any other choice. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, um, yeah, because we, we I, like you, we had the chance to speak to the translators you know, at break time and um, find out their stories. And yeah, it was pretty shocking. Some of the things they've been through and they didn't have any family left in the world and they were on their own and a lot of young males who are um, making the journey completely on, on, on their own. Mm-hmm. yeah you just you really heart reach out, out to them and you just want to make sure they have a good life ahead of them but um it's quite funny actually sometimes when you're when you're doing the translating uh, we found the way that we were speaking almost changed as well mm. um, speaking like quite like broken language or like um quite directly to try and um make the translation a bit easier but we we're going home in the evenings and speaking really weirdly to each other it's like, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, yeah you kind of almost have to don't you to sort of you can't feel really long and convoluted because yeah. that's just going to get lost in translation yeah, so you, you have, have to, to sort of direct and yeah mm, absolutely um would there be any I guess that would be a good tip in terms of sort of thinking about how you would communicate through translators in your consultations but are there any other tips or advice that you might give to somebody who might be watching or listening to this and might be interested in going and working in a refugee setting um, as we're still on the, just to add on to the translator part, um, if you're seeing someone with a translator and try and have a female translator for female patients and male translator for male patients, mm-hmm. something that I really appreciate in the beginning, mm-hmm. but then you get some patients aren't willing to open up and also some translators find it very difficult to translate things if you're asking about periods, if you're asking about testicles, things like that. Mm. Like, I can't talk to them about this it's not culturally appropriate yeah yeah so kind of speak so kind of know who you're who's seeing who mm-hmm. and then yeah speak speak clearly and slowly me and Flora both got told we speak too fast and um, so lots of people who'd come over from kind of Germany and Holland who for whom English was their second language they spoke nice and slowly yeah but um we didn't at all so, yeah. <laughs> quite quickly. I think we're used to working in A&E which like need to get the information out. So as soon as possible so talk a good feel as you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was another thing actually um with the translators was their sort of position in the room uh, or in the in the small space you had um mm-hmm. to try and not get them to if you're um trying to manage the expectations of the patient that you're seeing and saying you look I'm really sorry but we can't organize these tests that you want or we can't um, organize that scan um so the translator doesn't get the front of the frustration it's all on you mm-hmm. the healthcare provider which it should be um mm-hmm. so that was quite that was really important actually just to each consultation just remember that actually it's he don't treat the messenger kind of situation yeah that's a really yeah. good point actually because often they're the ones relaying the message so then they're the ones who are receiving like the disappointment yeah. or the anger um yeah. But actually, yeah, it, it should be on us because we're the ones who are sort of trying to yeah. do that. And any other sort of advice that you would, um, or recommendations that you'd give to people to prepare um, for going out? Um, I think, go ahead, Flora, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure we both have lots. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> fine. Flora, you um, shoot, and then raise you to give yeah. us your tips. <laughs> um, I think personally, just remember your own limitations. Um, mm-hmm. You're in an environment where there's um, complete, sort of 
variety and range of doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals from lots of different backgrounds um, and levels of experience and the sort of normal hierarchy that you used to at home and just is out the window and um, it's very it, it would be very easy for you to, to act up in in ways that you you shouldn't really be doing mm-hmm. um, so it was just both of us to remember what we'd be happy doing if we're not happy doing something just say if you're being asked to do a night shift and you're not happy doing that then just say um, we were both quite lucky to have a, a consultant back in the UK who was on the end of the phone if we needed any oh, great. advice so that was that was really good mm-hmm. um, yeah and just don't be afraid to, ask, to question question practices if you're not familiar with them it might just be a different guideline in a different country that they're following which is absolutely fine but um, yeah just be really open-minded but also um, just be happy with what you're doing yourself because you can very quickly get into deep water. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think before we went, we wrote um, quite boring, but we wrote a risk assessment, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which um, is actually I, I was like, oh, this isn't this isn't really going to show much, but it did make us think about certain things, and um, it depends what country you're going to, but things like vaccinations, um, your personal um, insurance, but also your indemnity. Mm-hmm. um and yeah and things with covid as well that was really important mm, definitely yeah um but yeah rose sorry interrupted you <laughs> yeah i was gonna say as well i suppose it's kind of managing your own expectations don't don't go out thinking i'm gonna go and save everyone mm. it'll be great i want to make a huge difference um because although it's, it's a great thing you're doing going out there um i think you're gonna i found personally that there were some days, I wrote a diary and some days it just, I've, I've looked back on it, there are things just saying like feeling overwhelmed, felt mm. very day, and I was like, oh no, what's going on with it? Um, yeah. You do go through quite a lot there yeah. and I think if you have this pressure on yourself that you're going to try and make people better, which you want to do as a doctor and fix them, it's going to be a really tough time mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of just looking for kind of little things that you can do seeing if you can talk to people a bit more help them in a small way see if there's ways they can get on the food queue that they haven't been put onto yet mm-hmm. so just kind of manageable things that you can do to help people and I think it helps your own mental health a lot more and also having someone that you yourself can talk to so me and Flora were lucky to be out there together so we could have a chat to each other if mm. we needed to and kind of we've had a bad day um, we can have a chat through it but lots of the NGOs like we stayed in as well have NGO houses where you can stay with other people working there mm. so actually it was quite nice that you could share experiences and kind of offload a bit because it is quite overwhelming mm. but it can be quite rewarding at the same time so it's knowing it's not all going to be good but yeah. kind of going with that awareness and still yeah. kind of going for it but taking care of yourself it's definitely mm. yeah yeah I think that's oh sorry go on Flora no no no. it was just a tag on to that um just um yeah looking after yourself and being self-sufficient as well you don't want to feel like a burden yourself so making sure you've got like really simple things like your own kit and food and drink for the day and and just making sure you're um looking after yourself as well um your, your own safety so Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. I think kind of just thinking about self-care, often as medics, we neglect our own sort of mental health and looking after our own well-being. And actually 
the best way to be able to help other people is actually if we're first looking after ourselves. Um, and I think that's really important. Was there anything, I guess, just sort of coming home um, that you found difficult or that you kind of did to help that transition coming back to reality after that experience? I think you do find difficult going back to an emergency department where we worked with people coming in with things that just seem so minor. They're complaining mm -hmm. about what's going on in their life and you're like, but you don't know what it could be like. It could be <laughs> horrible. But it's just kind of thing, just to me, it was thinking like actually everything is sort of relative. Mm -hmm. And one thing that it did teach me in Moria, I know I could have talked about mental health a lot, but there you see this horrible situation people are living in. You see the stress, you can feel it all the time. So you always think to ask kind of, are you feeling stressed? What's been going on to people? Mm -hmm. Which you kind of, I found at least, I do sometimes forget in the UK because mm. we're in this kind of nice sanitized environment. Mm. So I kind of tried to use my experience to kind of give more holistic care to people if I could. So just mm. trying to think, it is relative. Yeah. I can't, I'm not, I can't blame people for living like we do in a much better condition than people did in Moria. And it's just trying to give the best treatment you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I think it was that actually like um, hitting it on the head there. It was like the, I think it was the importance of perspective and in, in um, people's own perspective, you know, perception of their own um, health. Mm -hmm. And you can't really compare people. You just got to treat people on a case by case basis. And um, yeah. And then, yeah, I think coming home, um, being able to debrief between us was was really good but if you're going to go out there and do work on your own then it's I think just coming home speaking about it and not being afraid to speak about it mm -hmm. um, but also trying to I think this is what we're trying to do in the purpose of this sort of podcast is to try and spread the word a little bit and um, encourage people to go and do it and don't be afraid to go and do some work like this because I think it's really really important for you as a healthcare professional as well just to um, get that experience. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely I mean I think when I came home I basically cried for about a week um mm -hmm. but I think yeah. it was tricky because we were pulled out early um because it was just before Covid and there was some tensions and um a bit of a tricky situation um but I think definitely um debriefing talking to people don't be afraid and kind of I suppose just keeping that perspective there are some amazing incredible individuals out there um who are in desperate awful situations and I think especially at the moment with all the news being about COVID we just don't hear about it do we it's just kind of being yeah. ignored um yeah if that if a situation like that was happening in um you know in in UK like it would be on the news every single day or mm -hmm. you know like <clears throat> it's just bizarre that it's that's kind of okay <laughs> mm. of um yeah, just needs to be talked about more. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, um, I think it's probably time to draw this episode to a close. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today and sharing your experiences. It's been really, really valuable. Um, and I just hope that, um, you know, over time, um, things will change. People might um, become more open and receptive to the amazing, incredible refugees who are out there. Um, and just, you know, it's, it's a difficult year, but um, I guess we can hopefully look forward to things being better at some point. Um, and thank you. Thank you um, so much. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it was really good to speak to you. It's been yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the rest of your days and um, 
good luck with everything. Um, have a good sleep, Rose, um, and have <laughs> a great day, Flora, and we'll catch up soon. I'll put um, your bios on so that people can have a look at any more great. details. And is there, I think there's contact details that we have for you if people want to yeah, get we'll, in touch. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, that's fine. yeah, you've got our Six. email, I think. Okay, and you guys were both working with Medical Volunteers International. I was out there with um, BRF, but yeah, there's lots of great NGOs working out there. So please, people, if you're listening, don't be afraid to get out there. You you can, you will certainly 100% benefit from the experience. And there's just ama amazing, amazing people out yeah. there. That, um, I've, just, I've just spoken to a friend, actually, who's been working on Samos, um, okay. another Greek island. So there's not it's not just Moria as well just yeah people who don't know there's lots of other camps out there so if people want to get involved then there's loads of different opportunities that yeah you can do, so yeah brilliant thank you any last words before we sign off for today no, no thank you very much for okay. having us and yeah spread the word great thank you so much guys take care bye bye bye, bye.